Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And once again this week, uh, time seems to have gotten away from me. I, uh, I actually began working on this program last Monday, but as you already know, uh, well, a bomb exploded at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, and like many of us, I spent some time watching the news and thinking about what a strange world we humans have created for ourselves. Hopefully, uh, none of our fellow saloners were injured in Boston. I did have several friends running in the event, but uh, outside of the emotional distress, they're right now fine. I guess what bothered me the most, uh, about myself that is, is that each week it seems that we're hearing about bombs killing people in Baghdad and Kabul and Damascus and Greece and, well, in just about every corner of the world. But after a while, those stories just seem to kind of disappear in the background until something like that happens closer to home. The fact of the matter is that things like this are taking place every day near the homes of one or more of our fellow saloners, and we should think about that whenever the news reports one of these tragedies. You know, maybe we should stop for just a moment and think about the people who are directly affected by this violence. Because they are our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, co-workers. No matter where they happen to be living at that moment, uh, we have some kind of a connection to somebody that's in trouble. And I know that you join me in wishing peace to all of our fellow humans who are, well, just trying their best to overcome some very difficult situations right now. So, uh, now how do I transition from here into uh, introducing today's program? I guess uh, there's no smooth way other than just to say, well, let's get on with the show. And today's show is one that you should have already heard had I been a bit more efficient at podcasting the 2012 Planque Norte lectures that were held at last year's Burning Man Festival. The speaker that we're about to hear today is Dr. Natalie Metz, and she is a licensed naturopathic doctor, an herbalist, and an educator who currently practices in San Francisco. And I hope that after listening to Dr. Natalie with me, you follow her suggestion and become a little more proactive about consciously bringing plants into your life. I say consciously because... Even if you don't think about plants directly, uh, well, without them, we wouldn't even be alive. So maybe it's time to begin thinking more about the food, medicine, and poisons that plants provide to us. And listening to Dr. Natalie is a great way to begin. Up next, we have Dr. Natalie. Uh, Natalie, excuse me. Dr. Natalie. And um, she's a naturopathic doctor in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, a good friend. I've known her for several years and had the pleasure of seeing her give a talk this year at the Women's Visionary Congress called um, Entheogenic Empowerment, um, which was uh, kind of a breakdown of different ways to use supplements and um, other um, diet to modify your diet to optimize your psychedelic experiences. So um, it was a fabulous talk and very informative about what you should be taking before and after different substances in order to keep your brain feeling good. Um, so she's giving that talk actually tonight at 6 p.m. at Fractal Nation Village. Um, but today here she'll be talking about 
entheogens and plant medicine. So, um, yeah, with that, here's Natalie. Uh, Brian did not mention, but he's also doing another talk this evening at 5 p.m. at Fractal Nation. We have the Brian and Natalie tag team going on across the playa this this fine day. So um, perhaps, thank you. Will you be talking more about mythology tonight, potentially? Okay. Um, thank you, Chris, for the introduction, and thank you all for being here. I am Dr. Natalie. Um, I go by Dr. Natalie when I'm in San Francisco in my clinical practice, but... On the playa, Dr. Natalie is a little bit more appropriate. Um, so uh, let's see, where do I want to start? Uh, really feeling blessed and honored to be here and really excited to share some information with you and some of my passion about plant medicine and entheogens and botanicals. Um, I met Brian Wallace about three years ago at a little festival in Santa Cruz and started getting turned, in, turned on and tuned into the MAPS world and didn't really know that I had such a deep love of psychedelics and entheogens. And so through my experience working and volunteering with MAPS, I kind of started seeing the the need for more support in, around harm reduction. There are some wonderful models out there for harm reduction, um, but wanting to bring my knowledge as a naturopathic doctor forward around how people can support themselves and care for themselves if they're going to be an entheogenic or psychedelic rock star. So... I'll touch on probably a few of those things today here, but that's going to be more of the focus of the talk later on at Fractal Nation at 6 o'clock after Brian Wallace gives us more chocolate. Yes! <laughs> um, but today I wanted to speak a bit about my passion for plant medicine. And to start it, I'm actually going to come around and mist you with some aromatherapy. And that's going to be a game change. So how many of you like plants? Yay! What do you like about plants? They're green. They what? They uplift the space. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit, but I'm also going to encourage you to uh, participate, and I will ask you questions, <laughs> and I encourage you to respond. Um, so they take they make space nice. They're green. What else do we like about plants? Say that again. They talk to us. Okay. What else? Good for our bodies. Change the way we think and feel, right? They help us breathe, right? So there's a lot of functions that plants do, right? They teach us lots of things, right? So consider for a moment that every living organism pretty much on this planet, almost, at least us for sure, is reliant completely upon plants. What do you think about that? Can you see that? Am I totally full of it? How do we rely upon plants? What do we need from them? We have an everything over here. Can we be a little more specific? Oxygen, right? So there's this magical, magical process called photosynthesis, right? Where plants can take carbon dioxide molecules and merge them with water. And does anybody know what the two products are that we get from photosynthesis? One of them is pretty obvious, right? Oxygen, we said that. What's the other one? Nope, they're taking carbon di dioxide in, and then they're putting out what on the other side of photosynthesis? Oxygen and sugar in the form of glucose, which is the body's main metabolic fuel. Your body has 
evolved and adapted to be extremely efficient at breaking down glucose to produce actually 38 ATP molecules per glucose molecule. That's extremely efficient. There's no other molecule that your body breaks down more effectively or efficiently to produce energy. So glucose, muy importante, right? And we get it from plants. And what do they do? They harness carbon dioxide, they harness water, and then they mix it with what to create sugar and oxygen? Sunlight, right? So there's this amazing relationship, too, between the plant world and the solar world. Okay, so they're actually harnessing energy from the sun and complexing it into sugar molecules and also into oxygen for us. So we need plants because we, we would like to breathe oxygen, right? And we'd like for them to deal with our carbon dioxide, right? How else do we um, rely upon plants? For food, right? So um, one thing that I'm very blessed to do in my life is to teach herbal medicine workshops at the Esalen Institute. How many of you know about Esalen or have been to Esalen? All right. Yay, lots of hands. Okay. For those of you that don't know, Esalen is um, an intentional community as well as um, a retreat center and a variety of other things. But those are the two main things that it would be known for. It was started in the 1960s um, by two gentlemen who wanted to have a place where people could come. And they were originally holding peace talks, and then they started to evolve their ideas around exploring and expanding the human potential. So it's a place where... Um, Fritz Perls developed Gestalt therapy. Ida Rolf developed a lot of her therapy. Um, Terrence McKenna, a lot of people spent a lot of time there developing and exploring psychedelics and body work and yoga and different types of psychotherapy. And it's a beautiful place on the coast of California in Big Sur. And a couple times a year, I have the honor of going down there and teaching a course on how to identify and utilize the plants that are growing there on the land. And Sometimes I refer to this course as stewarding Esalen's herbal abundance because I really see our role as humans as stewards to this planet and particularly to the plants because we are completely reliant on them. Again, if they are gone, there's no more oxygen and there's no more glucose because they're the only things that are producing energy in this planet. So even if you are not a rapid plant eater and you eat animal products or something like that, where are the animals getting their energy? They're eating plants, right? So... There's this um, inevitable chain that I think is good to be aware of. I want to share a little bit about my background quickly um, in terms of how I got to be Dr. Nautily here today, um, <laughs> which is an evolving process. Um, when I was in college, I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And I went to the first pre-med meeting that we had, and everyone was so stressed out talking about the MCAT and freaking out about grades that I thought, oh my God, I'm like in the wrong place and I'm not going to do that. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be that. So then I kind of surfed around, lost a little bit, majoring in biology, fell in love with organic chemistry, which most people run screaming from, um, ended up switching my major to chemistry because I loved it so much and feeling kind of hopeless about becoming any sort of medical professional because I just, I knew I couldn't go the allopathic route. So my sophomore year of college, I had an anthropology course during which I got turned on to the presence of a local Native American medicine man with whom I could do an internship for college credit. That sounds awesome. So I managed to hook up this amazing internship. And once a week, I would meet with him for about three hours. 
at his house or we'd go visit sacred sites. This was in North Carolina. We'd go to powwows. We'd do a variety of things that really introduced me to Native American spirituality and to plant medicine in a new way. I was always tuned into nature, but I didn't know that you could use poke leaves for food as well as for injuries and whatnot. So there was a lot of things that I learned from this man about plants and healing and medicine, and it really expanded my perspective of what healing could look like. And I was very inspired, and I was both really loving chemistry and really loving plants and wanting to go into natural product chemistry originally, but having a really hard time finding any sort of graduate program that was of any worth that I could see at the time to pursue. And so I got more and more turned on to Native American ways and herbal medicine and crystals and energy and all of this stuff. But I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do with this? Where am I going to go with this? I'll just keep going on the chemistry train because I don't really know what to do with this. And then finally, somewhere in my last year of school, I was just, this was back when, when I got to college, I got my first email account. And I thought, what am I going to do with this email account? I would just walk, why don't I just walk down the hall and talk to my friend? Why would I email them? I didn't, it wasn't, you know, who knew that email was going to be what it is today, right? At our palm. So this was in the early days of me getting familiar with the internet, which was still not very developed, but I came across this site called naturalhealers.com. And on there was all these lists of all these amazing things, and there was something called naturopathic medicine. And I thought, well, what the heck is that? So I clicked on the link, and it took me to the school that I ended up going to, and I read about this program, and it had this four-year you know, postgraduate program with a hardcore training in the medical sciences as well as training in things like herbs and physical medicine and acupuncture and nutrition and homeopathy. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I want to do because I love science and I want to have that hardcore medical science training, but I also want to have like spirit and compassion and love and have other modalities besides pharmaceuticals and surgery in my back pocket and my toolbox. So I was pretty inspired, and I flew out to Arizona and checked out this school and loved it and thought, okay, this is great, but not yet. I'm going to use this chemistry degree and go work for a little while and save some money and buy a computer, and then I can move across the country. So I ended up getting a job in Boston and working as a synthetic chemist for a little while. Had I known then that what I'd be into now, things might look a little different in terms of what I was doing at work. But anyways... I, <laughs> Brian Wallace can appreciate that. Um, so I was working on these projects, developing drugs for diabetes and also for Parkinson's disease. And at the end of the day, I was left with a couple hundred milligrams of a little bit of a white or yellow powder, hopefully something crystalline at some point in time. And I thought, God, you know, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, at the end of the day, I've made 100 milligrams of some experimental drug that's going to go torture some rats, and I'm not really feeling this. My heart and my soul were just kind of, like, sinking. And yet I was still kind of in this place of, like, oh, my God, I'm scared to move across the country and go back to more school and all this and that. And then it just became very clear, as many of you may have experienced at some point in your life, that, like, your soul or your spirit or your higher purpose is just like, I'm going to kick your ass if you don't, like, go do this thing or if you don't give up that thing or if you don't, you know, seize this opportunity or let go of this thing that's not serving you. So I let go of my cushy little job out of college where I was making a decent amount of money and, you know, having the luxuries of the corporate America for what it's worth. Um, and I just followed my heart. And packed what I could into a little Jetta and drove it across the country to Arizona and started medical school and had no clue 
What amazing magic was waiting for me there? And a part of that was falling in love with plants on a whole other level beyond what I've, and that's still happening. It's like this rabbit hole that I'm just going down. So during my first year of medical school, I had an herbal pharmacy class where it was supposed to be once a week. Um, we would hang out with this wonderful herbalist, and she would teach us how to make different preparations of, of plants. And so we learned how to make different types of teas and salves and tinctures and balms and all sorts of wonderful things. And so here I was able to bring this, like, chemist piece of me that loved being in a lab and mixing things up into this other expression and in, in honoring my connection with the natural world and my love of nature and this evolving love of plants. Um, and so... This was a class that met twice a week, and our, our class was split into two sections, and I loved it so much that I asked if I could go to both sections. So I would go twice a week to this class and learn how to make all this cool little fun stuff, and it really inspired me to bring that into my own life and to go home and start making lotions at home and potions and just start experimenting. And so I kind of started my own apothecary at home that I still um, have today in terms of part of what I do with my life and my practice is make herbal potions and elixirs and topical things that people can use and aromatherapy blends. That's why I was running around misting you guys because that's just one very simple way that you can bring plant medicine into your life. And so that's one of the messages that I want to get across to you today is that it's very easy to bring plants into your life in a profound way beyond just maybe how you relate to them as food. Uh, well, one way that I like to help people think about plants is to bring them into the concept of looking at them as food, as medicine, or as poison, potentially. So, again, I'm going to ask for your participation. Who can tell me a few food plants? Just call out a few food plants. Cacao! Oh, my goodness. What else? What do you guys like to eat? Who's eating kale on the playa this week? It's going to save your ass. Okay, what else? Food plants. Just yell them out. Yay, avocados, potatoes, bananas, lettuce, cherries. What else? Coconuts. Coconuts. Life-saving on the playa as well. Aloe leaves. Life-saving on the playa as well. What about plants as medicine? How about some medicine plants? Because anyone... Belladonna. Valerian. What does valerian do? helps you take a nap right for some people it actually wakes them up but a lot of people they take a nap with it what other medicine plants come to mind echinacea what's echinacea good for boosting your immune system in an acute situation at the onset if you're already like three days into being sick don't waste your time with echinacea it's not going to do it what else calendula yay one of my favorite plants what's calendula good for everything (laughs) Calendula is a wonderful plant. I'm I'm actually going to give you a gift that includes calendula. It's sitting in this purple box. I happen to love purple. The fact that cacao beans are purple is... Brian and I have a love affair with purple. It's it's just what it is. Um, Calendula is a wonderful plant. Uh, It is a wonderful companion plant. I'm just going to speak a little bit to a couple plants that come up. It is often found growing along the edges of gardens. It has wonderful orange and yellow flowers and... It's one of the best things that you can use for your skin. It's one of the most healing plants that you can put topically on your body. It has this action that we call vulnerary in herbal medicine where it promotes healing and allows, supports your body's innate ability to repair itself. It also has compounds in it that would be classified as anti-inflammatory. 
and antimicrobial. I I use these words because they're easy for a lot of people to, to grasp, but I hope that at some point we'll come up with a new lexicon around herbal medicine, and maybe I'll be a part of that because I don't like this whole anti-this, anti-that. Anyways, calendula, it's really awesome on the outside. It's also really good on the inside. It's a plant that um, I've had patients drink and friends drink in teas when they've had some sort of gastritis or irritable bowel syndrome or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. It's very helpful um, with its quote-unquote anti-inflammatory properties on the inside as well as on the outside. So calendula, yay. It's um, Again, it's in this gift that you'll get in a little bit here. Um, Calendula is spelled C-A-L-E-N-D-U-L-A, calendula. And its Latin name is calendula officinalis. Whenever you hear a binomial um, nomenclature name of a plant, um, if you hear officinalis as the species name, it's an indication that the plant has been used as medicine historically. Okay, so calendula officinalis rosmarinus, which is rosemary, a lot of people might think of rosemary as a food, but rosemary is also a wonderful medicine as well. What are some other medicine plants? Yarrow. Any other? Rose hips. Rose hips are a great example of one that could potentially go into two categories, where it could be food and also a wonderful medicine, one of the highest concentrations of vitamin C in rose hips. How about some poison plants? Belladonna, right? So we put belladonna in the medicine category as well as potentially the, p- the poison category, right? What else? Poison hemlock. Datura is another great example of one that could be in both medicine or poison. Say it again. Coleus could be poisonous, could also be medicinal. So hemlock I'd like to speak to for a second. Um, when I teach this class at Esalen, we walk around the garden and we look at the plants or we spend time or if I'm doing a session that's indoors, I'll bring plants in with me so people can touch them and feel them and whatnot. Bringing plants to the to the desert is kind of an awful thing to do to them, So, and they would just be toasted by the time I even got to do this talk on Wednesday. So not really an option for our learning here, but one wonderful thing to know about hemlock, there's a couple different kinds. The kind I'm going to speak to right now is called poison hemlock. It grows <clears throat> near water. It can often be confused with things like carrots and cellar, uh, carrots and Queen Anne's lace and osha and lamatium, other medicine plants, because it's in that family of the umbiliferase. And there's this wonderful concept in herbal medicine called the doctrine of signatures. Has anybody ever heard of the doctrine of signatures? (laughs) I see a few little hands up here. The doctrine of signatures is this interesting concept that a plant will often reveal through its morphology or where it's growing what it's good for. So the shape, where it's growing, how it presents itself, the time of day or year that it blooms can often give clues to how a plant is used or how not to use it in the case of hemlock. So at some point, you will find someone that can point out poison hemlock to you. And if you notice, at the base of the stem of the poison hemlock, there are all these kind of reddish-purplish splotches. And in terms of the doctrine of signature, what I've heard is that it's an indication of, like, splattered blood. So indicating the mortality of this plant if you were to eat large quantities of it. You'd have to eat a fair amount of the root to do some damage to yourself, enough that you would probably feel pretty sick because it, number one, tastes awful and smells awful, and would probably start to cause some serious gastrointestinal symptoms before it really poisoned you neurologically. With that said, the very first time I ever went to Esalen back in 2000, 
six or seven ish, I met a farmer over on the far end of the farm who was in the hemlock patch picking it and eating it. And he was just eating little nibbles. And we had this wonderful conversation about it. And I said, okay, yeah, you know you're eating hemlock. And he's like, oh, yeah. He said, I'm doing it as a homeopathic dose. So homeopathic is like a really small, almost energetic dose that homeopathy is another conversation about. We don't even know how that works, but it does. Um, He said, when I eat these little pieces of hemlock, pieces of myself die off. Like little pieces of myself are being released and dying off. So I thought it was a very beautiful way of relating to this plant medicinally, even though it's potentially a very poisonous plant. Is this helpful to help think of plants in this terms of food, medicine, and poison and to see where some things can can overlay and blend between categories? Awesome. Um, Some other ways that we use plants um, for pleasure, right? Just having them in our environment is really nice. They clean the air. Um, You can actually look on, I think it's NASA's website, has a list of like the top 20 plants that are most efficient for cleaning air that you can have in your home. So if you live in a city or anywhere, really, it's nice to have plants in your environment that are helping to clean your air and produce good fresh oxygen for you. We admire them for beauty, right? Who doesn't like to look at a flower, right? Flowers are kind of the gift of the plants, right? Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, some preparations of plants. One of the most easily accessible preparations that most of you are probably familiar with is a tea, right? So there's two ways to make tea. We have an infusion process where we use pieces of the plant that are a little bit more gentle, such as flowers or leaves or what we call aerial portions of the plant that grow above ground. And we infuse them into warm water. So that's a simple way to think of that is putting your tea bag into a teacup and pouring water over it. That is an infusion. Okay. You could also do that with raw plants that you collected and then strain that. But obviously most of us are probably um, a little partial to that ease of dipping the tea bag in the cup and pouring some water over it. That's one way. An infusion, again, for gentle parts of the plant, flowers, leaves, aerial portions. A decoction. A decoction is where we cook pieces of a plant. So we cook the roots or the bark or some portion of the plant that needs a bit more time for the medicinal components to be extracted into the water. So we might boil roots of like, say, licorice, for example, for about 20 minutes. If you wanted to make a really awesome digestive tea, you could boil licorice roots for about 20 minutes, strain those roots out, pour that liquid over some peppermint leaves, and then let that steep for about five minutes and strain that. And you'd have an amazing infusion and decoction that's been made into your tea that you've now harnessed the most medicinal portions of the plants in the most effective way out of them. So plant preparation is important in terms of acquiring what you want to acquire as far as the medicinal components out of a plant. So something like calendula, peppermint leaves, lavender flowers, those would all work well in an infusion. Things like white willow bark, licorice roots, astragalus roots, All of those will work better in a decoction. Who knows what a tincture is? So a tincture is an extraction of a plant that has been harnessed into an alcohol and water combination, most most commonly. And so if we're using a fresh plant, that plant is going to have a higher water content in it already. So it's ideal to use a higher alcohol component, such as Everclear, or something really, really strong in its alcohol... um, 
or some distilled organic grape alcohol, something really like high proof. Um, and that's going to help to to cut that water and to pull those medicinal uh, properties into into that extraction. It's also really helpful if you have a resinous plant, so something that's really gummy. If you were going to extract like myrrh or frankincense, which have medicinal qualities, um, you'd want to use something like a very high alcohol component because that's going to allow those more lipophilic or fat-soluble components to come into this pseudo-aqueous solution. What else do I want to say? You can also use oil to extract plants, right? You could use a very simple thing you could do at home would put some would be to chop up some garlic and steep it in some olive oil. You could just do some raw fresh garlic in a bottle of olive oil for a few days and use that as a cooking oil and you'd have some really nice medicinal qualities as well as culinary qualities of your garlic infused into that olive oil. Um, you could also use calendula into olive oil and you'd have a nice topical thing that you could use on your body as far as a nice um, lotion essentially. <clears throat> Who knows what a salve is? All right. We got a couple a couple herb nerds in front here. I love it. <laughs> a salve is when you take an oil extraction and mix that in with beeswax or some other thicker um, oil, like coconut oil might work or coconut cocoa butter, coconut butter could work too. Um, and you make it a little bit thicker. So now you have kind of like this, this ointment that you can use and that has some advantages over an oil in terms of like maybe you want to use it for massage or you want to put it on a wound that you want it to be able to sit on top of the surface of the skin for a little bit so that's one advantage of using a salve this gift that i'm going to give you in a little bit here is kind of the equivalent of what a salve would be we also have essential oils right these are often the steam distillation products of plants the aromatic qualities that go volatile that we smell that I was spraying around on you before we can capture those with steam distillation and keep them in a little airtight bottle so that they don't evaporate how many of you use essential oils in your lives <coughs> a couple of you awesome um, some essential oils are solvent extracted there's some plants that are very resinous like jasmine for example and rose auto are very challenging to extract without the use of solvents so it's important if you are using essential oils or using attars or absolutes to look and see what has this been extracted with you want ideally to get something that's been that was organically crafted and steam distilled there are a few things that you just really can't get without a little bit of solvent in them but you don't want to generally be using essential oils that have been solvent extracted when there is a steam distillation option because it's that much cleaner and you do not need to put solvents and weird petrochemicals onto your body or in your body for that matter what else do i want to say about preparations mm. there's other ways to use plants and herbs such as taking a datura flower for example and putting it under your pillow or putting some mugwort um leaves under your pillow to help you with dreaming so there's lots of different ways to incorporate plant medicine into our lives beyond just food medicine and hopefully avoiding the poisons are there any questions at this time yes no okay is calendula good for prostate problems yes because one of its other amazing actions is that it serves as a pelvic lymphagogue has anybody heard of this word lymphagogue i don't expect you to Whenever you hear gog on the end of a word, it means that it helps to pump on that organ so that it can move its juices, essentially. 
So when we say the word lymphagogue, it's helping to move lymphatic fluid in the body. And calendula, in addition to being amazing for soothing intestinal inflammation or irritation, as well as soothing topically and promoting healing, is a wonderful herb, whether taken in tincture or tea form, to move the lymphatic fluid in the pelvis. So if you have some sort of prostate problem or reproductive organ challenge or bladder problem or cervical dysplasia, you've had an abnormal pap smear, it's a wonderful herb <clears throat> to help move your own immune system's fluid in that area. So yes, it would be wonderful for... You're welcome. Yeah. I love herbs. Um, in naturopathic medical school, we were responsible for being able to um, accurately, effectively utilize and um, answer lots of questions about 250 of them on my board exam. So I've studied a lot about plants and I love them and there's so much more to learn. Even with the amount of herbs that I feel very familiar with, I, I will spend the rest of my life and I will know maybe I'll scratch the surface is how I feel honestly because there's just so many all around the world and you know they've been used around the world in every single culture for medicine and healing since the beginning of time Terence McKenna <coughs> speaks um, in his book I believe Food of the Gods maybe about the ur plant being what was this plant the ur plant what was the original plant that people ate Granted, this is not truly a plant that he hypothesizes about, but regardless, I, I like to keep it. They're cousins. He was um, looking through ethnobotanical records and trying to see, you know, what was it that helped people eat their way to consciousness? And there's hypotheses about, oh, maybe it's this plant or that plant. Terrence McKenna basically comes down to thinking that it was actually fungus. <coughs> mushrooms growing on the African savanna. So mushrooms are in their own unique kingdom, but I think of them when I talk about plants because they're like cousins and they're amazing, um, amazing workers. I mean, fungus, they're the organisms that decompose matter and transform it, right? So they're another, um, plants have this, plants and fungus have this amazing transformative capacity, right? We talked about photosynthesis earlier, making oxygen and sugar. We have fungus that break down material and create other incredible compounds plants and fungus are are like the best biochemists in the world right they make such complex molecules that we're only really scratching the surface of as we study them more and more what else do i want to say i like to think a lot um actually i'm going to i'm going to share this quote with you now that we're talking about plants being the best biochemists so when i worked as a pharmaceutical chemist I joined a company that was a small company at the time. There were only 70 chemists in the MedChem department. <clears throat> These are the people that are the innovators of new drugs and work in concert with x-ray crystallographers and molecular modelers and people that look at computers all day and figure out what enzyme pockets look like and how we should make a molecule to fit into that, like a key into a lock and all this. But at the end of the day, it's the med, chem, med chemists that are cooking these things up in their hoods and sending them off to enzyme and, and rat assays. And when I joined the company, there were only two female chemists out of 70. So it was kind of intense to step as a young, like 21-year-old out of college into this extremely yonged out male-dominated um, culture, which was fine. And luckily at the time that I joined the company, they hired, hired, I think, three women. So there were now five of us and 
a company of 75 or something. And <clears throat> needless to say, there was a lot of ego in place. And while I do think it's completely amazing and fascinating that we can synthesize chemicals, and this summer I had the opportunity to spend the 4th of July at um, the Shulgin's residence and hang out in Sasha's lab out back. And Sasha's not super active right now in terms of synthesizing chemicals, but he has an amazing team of chemists that hang out back there from time to time, and I got to powwow with a bunch of them and talk about interesting substitutions on molecules that I'm still starting to understand. But one thing I really noticed in this pharmaceutical company that I worked at was that, yeah, there's a lot of room for ego in this concept of, like, I'm making this drug, and ha, 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 it's going to save the world and stop diabetes. And as a naturopathic doctor, I really believe that... <clears throat> It's not drugs that are going to save us. It's it's really us, and it's probably the plants that are going to save us, actually. Whether it's cacao or echinacea or calendula or that little house plant that you once in a while squirt some water on and say, oh, I'm so sorry. It loves you. It's happy to be there with you. Yeah, listen to it. So I, I found this quote when I was working as a chemist and being a little bit of like a, a trickster and a happy maker and a fun lover. I posted it up in my <clears throat> my cube, and the quote said, Some chemists, having synthesized a few compounds, deem themselves to be better than Mother Nature, who, in addition to synthesizing compounds too numerous to mention, synthesized those chemists as well. <laughs> I really enjoyed having that up for a little bit of a perspective shift. Like, yeah, you might be cool because you made that thing that we're now going to patent and maybe this company's going to make a lot of money on it. But at the end of the day, like mother nature made you. So the best chemist out there is really mother nature. And really, I think the plants are pretty epic with it. Mm, okay. I want to share a little bit about um, some of my personal experiences with plants. And before I do that, I'm going to give you a gift because you've all just been like hanging out here so patiently and, you might, you might want this gift. <clears throat> so one of the things that I love to do in my little herbal apothecary, and particularly for Burning Man, is to make lip balm. Because guess what? You get a little cracked out out here, huh? By the end of the week, your stuff's all cracked and dry and just not fun. So I'm going to hand out, I'm going to hand this little purple um, box around. And there's some homemade lip balms in there. And these were made with plants that were gathered at Esalen, this magical place that I've been fortunate enough to call home in California for on and off for a couple of years now. And there's calendula in there, and there's also comfrey in there. And comfrey is one of the best herbs that you can also put topically on your skin. It actually, um, it actually promotes your body's ability to form granulation tissue, and that's what comes in when you've had a wound. And so you know when you gouge yourself rather deeply what happens first is you get this kind of whitish pinkish tissue that's called granulation tissue and it's a process where it fills in from the periphery to the center and essentially knits a wound together and comfrey if you were to look at one of its leaves has this very interesting um, pattern to it that almost looks like this cellular mesh and so again this doctrine of signatures idea that maybe a plant can give us some idea of what it might be useful for in its appearance or its where it lives or whatnot. So comfrey and calendula are the two plants that I gathered a lot of at Esalen for this batch of lip balm. Thank you. And it's complexed with some beeswax. They were The calendula and comfrey were extracted in olive oil and then 
that olive oil was strained. It was added to some melted beeswax, and I added some vitamin E in there and some essential oils and made this yummy, yummy lip balm that is being brought to you in recycled plastic containers with um, some love put in there by my campmates. We have a camp called Feel the Love, which is over at 315 and G. You're welcome to come by and visit us. But I'm going to pass this around. I'm also going to pass around um, a little piece of paper here. And if you care to put your name, you can use any name, your name, your play name, and an email address. I'd be happy to <clears throat> stay in contact with you about some of the things I'm doing in the plant world. And um, there's also an email address on these lip balms if you want to ever write to me. Um, I'm very passionate about this. I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk about uh, some of my plant experiences, and then we'll wrap it up. So I have just a few minutes left here, but I want to talk about one of um, my most profound plant teachers, um, Mama Ayahuasca. Feel free. <laughs> If you care to share if you've had an experience with ayahuasca. Hmm. Just a few. Okay. Great. So San Pedro. Okay. Much different, but same, same. So three years ago. Um, so what's true is after I got out of medical school, I graduated. I worked for a little while. I had a practice in Phoenix. I went through a heartbreak. I took my little broken heart and moved to Esalen. And thought I was going there for like a month. Ended up being there for five months. Never really have left California because why would I? It's just amazing, especially the Bay Area. But I've been slowly crawling my way up the coast from Big Sur. Then I moved and um, probably my maybe six months into living there, one of my patients actually said, you know, I think that you might be really interested in connecting with uh, this circle that does ayahuasca locally. And I said, yes, I am. And for years and years and years prior to this, I had heard of ayahuasca. I had been interested in ayahuasca and it never felt quite right. <clears throat> and that's one thing that's just a beautiful thing to listen to in your life when you get that intuitive knowing that like, yes, this is the time or no, this is not the thing to really honor that. <coughs> so, Mama Ayahuasca came to me in 2009 when I was living in Santa Cruz. And I said, okay, I'm just going to like trust this process. And I go to this circle and I don't know, really know what I'm getting myself into, but I feel really good about it. And in my first ayahuasca journey, well, let me say a few things about ayahuasca first. Ayahuasca is both a plant and a brew. So it is the it is one common name. It's a Quechua name for a plant called Banisteriopsis capi that grows in the Amazon and throughout um, portions of South America and is now being propagated around the world. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of its medicinal quality, um, the Banisteriopsis contains MAOIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which Brian referred to earlier. These are compounds that can inhibit an enzyme in your body that is designed to break down things like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. That's important, right? It's important that we have enzymes in our body that can break down things like serotonin and dopamine and recycle them so that we don't, so that we can uh, keep our biochemistry going. Banisteriopsis has this ability to inhibit those processes. And when it is mixed with another plant, usually something um, of the psychotria variety, which contains DMT, it inhibits the body's ability to break down DMT. If you were to take a bunch of DMT orally without an MAOI, it just wouldn't do anything. It would just pass through your system and get broken down, and you would not have like a visionary experience that you might be seeking. Smoke it, a different story, but eating it, not going to happen. 
unless if you have an MAOI. So one of the beautiful magical mysteries of the ayahuasca brew is that it's actually the synergy of these two plants that come together <clears throat> to produce the healing, mystical, visionary, entheogenic effects that people experience when they take ayahuasca. The chemistry is complex, but it's also simple in some ways because there's just a couple of these basic compounds that have shown this really strong MAOI um, activity. And you take one or the other independently and you don't have the same thing. And how did people who are living in the Amazon know to combine these plants? Right? The Banisteriopsis is a vine. It's often referred to as vine of the soul. It can be a thick, it's a thick woody vine or a liana. And the Psychotria viridis, also known as Chakruna, is a bush, a shrub. Once in a while it can grow up into a tree. <clears throat> and it has these really beautiful shiny leaves. And so how do these people know? If you ask people there, they will say, well, the plants told us, right? The plants will often let you know what they're good for. Again, there's this doctrine of signatures, but before we even get into that heady space, listening with your heart. One of my teachers said one time, animals communicate with us telepathically and plants communicate with us empathically. So often when we're hanging out with plants or using them as medicine or food, we'll get impressions on that emotional, heart-centered level. So who knows? Maybe some, some way someone just sang into someone's heart at some point in time and said, combine these two together. We want to make brew and take you on a journey. So that's a little bit about the magic of ayahuasca in terms of its preparation and how magical it is that these plants need to come together. <coughs> and... Another magical part of ayahuasca is now it's becoming widespreadly it's it's widespread use around the world. So it's not something that it's something that 200 years ago perhaps was really limited to um, use in South America and in the 1850s started getting exposed by ethnobotanists to other portions of the world and people got curious and then people started taking ayahuasca and journeying with it and then I would say probably in the past 30 years or so it's really exploded and one of the one of the things I like to think about is like what does ayahuasca want? Like what does mama ayahuasca want? And <clears throat> something that's come to me in journeys and outside of journeys is that number one, ayahuasca is a very profound healer. A lot of people use it, um, participate in ayahuasca ceremony for healing, whether that's their own personal healing on a physical level, an emotional level, a mental, a spiritual level, as well as on the collective level. It's often consumed it's pretty much always consumed ceremonially in um, a group context and within that context there is a group field that's created so my teachers call it the gathering spirit that comes and helps to orchestrate what everybody's working through but also what we're bringing in from the outside and what we're sending out in terms of enveloping the world in a bubble of love so on my very first ayahuasca journey <clears throat> i went into it saying okay i really love plants now what like, what am I supposed to do with this? And the message that I heard was, be our advocate. And so that is a role that I'm still feeling into and finding out how to show up for. And, you know, doing this talk today and handing out a very simple little gift of lip balm is one way that I'm really trying to advocate for people to raise their consciousness about plant medicine, about plants as food, about plants as poison, about plants as companions, and to bring that into their life. Ayahuasca has been a profound healer for me on many, many levels. It's helped me to um, work through deep emotional things. 
as well as physical things. I've seen people have incredibly transformative experiences um, within ceremonies and, and sharing afterwards. It's something that <clears throat> in the past year I've been asked to step up more in an assisting type of role. And so that's something that I'm kind of taking on now is learning how to work in that way where I'm having my own process, but I'm also able to really facilitate someone else's. I feel really honored about that. What else do I want to say? I know I'm over time, so I want to really honor that. And I want to say in terms of plant medicine, whether it's cannabis or wachuma or ayahuasca or working with los honguitos or, um, yeah, any of the plant medicines in my experience, they really want to help us. They really want, they are reliant on us. Plants can't walk. They rely on us to carry them around the world, to carry their seeds around the world. <clears throat> Ayahuasca being grown in Hawaii now, in Fiji. Who doesn't want to live in Hawaii or grow in Hawaii, right? Of course she wants to be there. So I, I invite you to take some of these things that I've talked about home with you and experiment with these ideas and hang out. Spend some time with the plants in your house or in your garden or make the effort to befriend a plant, whether that's a rose bush. Or a simple thing that might look like a weed in your yard. It has consciousness. It has love. It has oxygen and sugar to give you. And yeah, I just invite you to experiment and make tea and sip tea and bring plant energy and plant consciousness into your life um, in a different way. Because they're really available and they really want to help us. And that's part of what I'm here to tell you. And if you want to learn a little bit more about being an entheogenic rock star in terms of supplements and herbs and nutritional things that can support you, if you're taking psychedelics or having entheogenic experiences, then come to Fractal Nation tonight at 6, and I'll be talking about that. And thank you to Pez for inviting me to be here. And thank you to all of you for being here. I'm super appreciative. Blessings. Love. And maybe we have a minute or two for questions if anybody has a question. Do you consider natural products to be better than man-made products, as in chemicals, like vitamin C? I love this question. <clears throat> One of my um, plant teachers, who was this magical naturopathic doctor who really got to know plants when he was in a... <clears throat> he had some sort of massive injury that left him bedridden for like three months. And so he just laid in bed with a bunch of tinctures like on the headboard behind him and every day would just like pull one down and meditate with it, take a few drops and just meditate. He said to me at one point in time, chemicals are, are natural. Everything comes from nature. So whether it is made by the hand of man or woman, it's still natural. And the spirit quality of it? Yes. This is an awesome, an awesome question. Um, I would say in my own experience when I've used entheogens that are nature-based in terms of actually a plant versus something that has been cooked up in a pot <clears throat> there is a different quality for in my personal experience in terms I don't think that one is better than the other I think that they all have their gift and their teaching to bring um, but there's a different quality to the experience in that often the nature-based ones facilitate me feeling more connected to nature on some level and the chemical ones can also facilitate that but there tends to be often more of a mental aspect for me not always but sometimes that those are a couple things that i notice the other thing i will say about <clears throat> chemicals is that 
it's really important to know your chemist or know somebody who knows their your chemist and trust the medicine that's coming to you and don't take anything that you don't feel 150% about because there's some shady shit out there and having worked in chemical industry and seen seen the energy of the chemists that I worked with there were times where I would make a batch of XYZ chemical and then my boss would make a batch of of the same chemical and we'd put them into the enzyme assays and they'd have different rea- they'd have different um, outcomes and I think it was because he was a miserable mother effer and that he was putting really you know negative energy into his medicine and I don't know that that's true and I don't know how to test that but when you're preparing your tea when you're preparing your wachuma your ayahuasca when you're preparing your chocolate, when you're preparing your food, when you're about to take an LSD journey, take a moment and put some intention and love around what you want to manifest. And that will help. And in terms of like, is vitamin C that's synthetic better than what's natural? You can't, I can't necessarily say because they tend to seem, they seem in the research to have the same effect in terms of their efficacy and potency. Can you use the mic? I, I had asked the same question of an ethnobotanist, and he said there was no difference, and I really wasn't satisfied with the, with the, with the answer that he gave me. He had no explanation. He just said no. <laughs> Hi. Um, what do you think? I came across this idea. I don't think I can express it very well, where you use more parts of the plants instead of just isolating one part of the plant, the active component. They're using synergi- There's something synergistically that happens when you use more parts of the plants. Can you speak to that a Absolutely. little bit? Absolutely, yeah. So the question is about using whole plant versus like an extracted, like standardized extract is what they're referred to in herbal medicine. So often if you pick up something like milk thistle, you'll see that it'll say standardized to 50% silymarin. Or if you pick up St. John's wort, it'll say standardized to 50% hypericin. Um, in the Western, you know, materialistic reductionist model that we are immersed in on some level, it's very, um, it's fascinating and interesting to figure out like, well, which chemical causes the blah, 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 or interfere, you know, intersects with this receptor or inhibits this enzyme. Um, so there's some validity into looking into that question. However, what's true is that when you are using a whole plant, a whole plant complex versus just an isolated extract, you're getting a whole bunch of other stuff in there with the plant, like vitamins and minerals and other things like Brian referred to in his talk about, um, we've got polyphenols and antioxidants that are, and some things that are acting, the um, epicatechin that's acting as an MAOI that's enhancing the effects of the theobromine. But if you heat the chocolate too much, it's cooked out. So you're not getting that. So there are other, um, There are other compounds in the plant that will facilitate the plant's ability to do its job. And I'll give you an example of that really quickly. Dandelion leaf. Okay, dandelion is thought of as a common weed by a lot of people. But the um, dandelion root is used for liver uh, detoxification and stimulation. And dandelion leaf is both a bitter green that you can eat, and it's one of nature's best diuretics. One of the problems with the pharmaceutical diuretics such as Lasix or hydrochlorothiazide and whatnot is that they tend to deplete potassium from the body. So often people who have something like congestive heart failure or edema or ascites or some other problem where they're retaining water and they are using a diuretic to get rid of that start to get depleted of potassium in their body and they need to now take another thing to replace that potassium. What dandelion has, in addition to being an amazing diuretic, the leaf itself, has one of the highest contents of potassium, 
found in plants. So nature has this inherent wisdom of providing the things that we need. And so using them in a whole form is definitely beneficial. So I hope that answered your question and gave you a little bit of an example. And I don't know if there's any more questions. One more question. You started it out kind of inviting us to speak to what plants are, like food and um, the relationship to air. You mentioned how Terrence talked about mushrooms kind of being us expanding into consciousness. And I think that the information quality of plants is super important. And hearing your, um, your relationship to ayahuasca and how she's kind of... It's kind of commissioned you to be a representative of that plant in a sense. And and this message that you're bringing to us being this like this one of us awakening to our connection, reawakening to our connection to the plants. Dependence. Complete (laughs) interdependence. Complete dependence, actually. Right. Right. Um, I think. uh, Well, one, it was a beautiful sharing that you did with us today and i think that um thank you again for the lip balm too it's awesome yeah um if i could if i can invite you to answer one question it would it would be like in this grand kind of awakening of us like waking up to our relationship (laughs) to the plant kingdom um where where would you encourage newcomers to begin to establish their relationship to the plants. I mean, you say go out and have a conversation with the plants at the Eslan and stuff. Is, is that the initiation? So the question is, um, where do I suggest that newcomers, uh, and it, a place for them to initiate forming relationships with plants? Start at home. Start at home and start with your body and start with your environment. I mean, drink tea. Drink tea. Just have direct experience with the plants. Learn how to blend a tea. Learn... Learn something about a tea blend that you like. That's one way to start with just ingestion. Get a plant and put it in your room. Look at what's growing outside your door, even if it's something that's coming out of a crack that you're like, what is this little thing? Just hang out with it. Just start forming relationship in your immediate environment, and that will enable you to and support you to start expanding your environment because as you... I mean, it's at the point now where, like, I'll go visit, I'll go to a friend's house, and, like, the plants are screaming at me. Like, I need some water! Could you turn me? I need more light! And I'm like, okay, uh, your plants are kind of screaming at me. I'm going to water them. I hope you don't mind that. And they're like, oh, yeah, I haven't watered them in two weeks or whatever. So they will, they want to be engaged. And you will notice if you hang out with them, they will start to ruffle their leaves, and they'll start to make little motions. So tea, your salad... You know, love your romaine when you're crunching it up here. Like, kale does well on the playa. Like, just be with your food and and give thanks to it and give thanks to the ancestral wisdom that's coming down. I mean, again, these are like the best biochemists on the planet. So just start at home. Start with yourself. Start with your lip balm. Start with, you know, a little bit of essential oil. When you get back to your camp or with a friend here, come up and get another spritz before you go. Just invite it in and just open your heart and they'll come in so tea plants around your house all of that and you know if you're interested in things like wachuma ceremony and ayahuasca and all of that like there's plenty of people here on the playa that are well versed in these things and you're in a safe place here to you know approach some of us to have private conversations about that but just know that you have resources all around and even though we're not seeing a lot of plants out here on the playa 
you know, look at those crazy little scrubby sagebrushes that are sticking it out here when you're driving home and driving off the playa. Like, they have fortitude and will, and they are producing the oxygen that we're breathing here. So have gratitude and notice them and invite them into your immediate environment. I think that's probably the best thing I could say. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Blessings. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I hope that if you aren't already well connected with some plants, that you go out to a plant nursery today and buy at least a small plant for your house or apartment. Right now, uh, next door to where we're living, our neighbor has a truly beautiful and uh, somewhat unusual tree in her front yard. When I asked her about it, I learned that this huge tree was once in a small pot on her kitchen table many years ago. And that's another thing about plants. If you know what you're doing, they'll live with you for a long time. Much longer than a dog or a cat, for sure. In fact, my wife has a lot of plants that she has, uh, well, she's had them longer than we've known each other. Uh, One of them she's had even longer than her children have been alive. And since we have to move from time to time, as uh, we generally only have a month-to-month lease on our apartment, well, my wife has very cleverly created what we call her portable garden. And I'm guessing that there are probably over a hundred plants in her garden right now, and, well, some of them are actually the size of small trees. Uh, When we move, it uh, actually takes more time and energy to move the plants than it does to move our furniture. Uh, And in in our portable garden, our backyard garden, they're all arranged in a way that, well, at first they seem to be kind of a permanent part of the little backyard we have. But uh, they're all in pots, and, uh, well, some of them are even bigger than the two of us can lift. And uh, I have to confess here that helping her move them around during one of the rearranging times that come around every once in a while, well, that's about my only involvement with them from a nurturing standpoint. However, I do talk with them. And if anyone else is around here, I just do it silently. But when I'm alone, I talk out loud to them. And uh, I have to admit that when I first began doing this, it did seem a bit strange to me. But after uh, more than 10 years with some of them now, well, we've grown to know each other. And uh, I'm sure that they can sense my moods. Actually, uh, ever since beginning my ayahuasca practice, I've been growing much closer to all the plants that I come in contact with. Even on my morning walk, there are now several trees and shrubs that have become old friends. And you probably do this yourself, but... If you don't, well, you should give it a try. Particularly if you uh, think that talking to plants sounds a little hokey. You might just be surprised at how sentient these wonderful friends actually are. So, I want to again thank Dr. Natalie for reminding me again about how deeply intertwined we all are to the plant world. And should you want to get in touch with Dr. Natalie, I'll put her email address with the program notes for this podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. I know that last year she spoke at the Women's Visionary Congress, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she's back this year. As you uh, may recall, the dates for this year's conference are June 14th to the 16th, and it's going to be held at the Ions Retreat Center in Petaluma, California. And uh, one last thing, while I hadn't planned it this way, today happens to be April 20th, or uh, 420 as we like to call it, which makes it even more special for me uh, due to the fact that tonight at the MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference that is being held in Oakland right now, there's going to be a screening, uh, the world premiere in fact, 
of Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, in which I tell a few stories about what it was like in Dallas, Texas, during the period when MDMA, or ecstasy, first hit the streets in a big way. Uh, I'm not going to be able to make it to the conference myself, but I'll be there with everyone in spirit for sure. The uh, spirit of 420, that is, uh, (laughs) and I hope you'll be joining me. Actually, uh, in one of my next podcasts, I hope to be able to let you know where you can see this video for yourself. Uh, I think the producers are going to make it available online, and uh, if that does happen, I'll let you know. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.